at the cross.
light the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in. When Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart I receive my sight, and now I am happy all the day. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. If you are here for the first time today, we would be delighted if you'd find one of these cards. It should be real close to you there, maybe on a... Is anybody need one, doesn't have one? I'll get... It's, it's y'all. I got my mic on. Anyway, get one of these cards. And if you are not here for the first time... You may want to get one of them anyway because on the bottom it has a place for a prayer request. And I have a feeling that there are some things that you need the Lord to do for you today. And you could write it down and we will take it to Him for you. Not that you can't, you know, do this yourself, but the Lord listens to us a lot. Have you noticed that? We pray and God answers. And it's amazing to see what God does. And so fill this out and uh, let us know what you need to pray for, and we'll bring it to the Lord on your behalf. Right now, we need to pray for making sure that things are right between us and the Lord before we continue the worship today. You, uh, You didn't make it through this week without sinning against God, did you? Anybody made it this week without doing anything stupid or sinning against the Lord this week? I didn't. And I'm the preacher. If you think that because I'm the preacher, I'm supposed to live a perfect life, I can't do it. I can't. I want to, and I will someday when I get a new body to change out for this piece of junk I'm living in right now. But until that day comes, I gotta, I've got to learn to use 1 John 1.9 in my life. 
First John 1 John 1.9 is a promise that God gave, not to everybody, but to His children, people that are saved, people that are on their way to heaven, who put their trust in Jesus and know for sure that they're born again. He said, if we, you and me, will confess our sin, that's tell the Lord that we know it was wrong and we did it. That He is faithful and just. Faithful means He will always be there for us no matter what. Just means that He is able to forgive us because He has already paid for it when He went to the cross on our behalf. And if I'm willing to confess my sin, you got to understand, this is for people that are already saved. It doesn't mean He's going to save me again. Salvation doesn't go away. But fellowship gets interrupted when we sin against God. And there's a bunch of different ways to do that. You can do things that you know are wrong, and it's sin. And you can fail to do what you know you should have done, and it's sin too. And both of those things interrupt our fellowship, our walk with our Heavenly Father. And if we're willing to confess our sin, God says He'll clear it all away, give us a brand new start, wipe the slate clean, and let us start out anew with a fresh heart, clean heart. And that's what we want this morning. So we're going to go to prayer right now. And I'm going to invite you to ask the Lord, Lord, show me where I failed you. Show me where I sinned against you. And then when he brings that to your mind, you confess that back to him. And he will keep his word and he will make you clean all over again. Amen? Let's go to him now. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father. That as we bow before you in pure worship, Lord, we who are your children, we, Father, have failed you in lots of ways and we can't seem to get through a day without failing you somehow and Lord I've had conversations with you this morning about those failures and and I know that you have cleansed my heart and you've forgiven me Lord and I pray Father right now that all of us Lord here that you would remind us where we have fallen short of your glory where we did fail you And allow us, Lord, to acknowledge that to you so you can keep your promise to us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we want to be used for your glory today. We want to lift up worship, Lord, today that's acceptable. And we can't do that with sin in our heart. We can't do that, Lord, being out of fellowship with you. And so, Lord, we ask you, Father, to cleanse us of our sin, restore our fellowship, And use us for your glory as we lift up praise and adoration to you today. And we ask it in the name and the righteousness of Jesus. Amen, Lord, and amen. All right, let's all stand. Let's continue to worship this morning.
rescued my soul. His blood has taken my sin. I believe. I believe. My shame is taken away.
I forgive you because you were forsaken and I'm accepted to work again. Thank you.
Children's second grade, we'll be going back with Brother Josh Sharp to King's Kids. And third through sixth, if we do have any today, we'll be in pastor's class with Miss Lisa Dill today. And you may be seated, by the way. And I guess the rest of you cheerings get to stay in here with me. <laughs> and, uh, although there is still time to run, but it's, 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 it's uh, getting shorter every, every second. Well, good morning, Lighthouse. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 2. Now, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. And, you know, we've been, we've been studying this book in Sunday school, and, and I've often wanted to preach out of this book. You know, it's, it's, it's fascinating, and, and when studied, I, I believe it has a direct message for the church today. My problem over the years, however, has been how to condense the messages down into these nice little 20-minute or so bite-sized tidbits. I still haven't come up with a, a solution for that particular problem, but the Lord willing... This will be the first of several messages dealing with this text. And, I, and, and it's my hope that, that uh, you guys will be as blessed in hearing this as I am being allowed to present it. So, Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be looking at four verses, uh, starting with verse 8. And it says, Unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which, uh, which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. <clears throat> well, the city of Smyrna was located some 35 miles north of Ephesus. Um, it was located in modern-day Turkey and is now called the city of Izmir. It was, a, it was a prosperous city. And it had a population at the time of this writing of, of, of roughly over 100,000 people. Now, this location in Turkey has been inhabited for over 3,000 years, and, there, and no one knows for sure who exactly founded the church at Smyrna or exactly when it was founded. Now, this city was destroyed by a massive earthquake a few years before the birth of Jesus. But the city was rebuilt and it thrived. And it possessed a safe harbor where ships from all over the world came to buy and sell goods. It came to be known uh, as the Crown City because it was surrounded by hills that resembled a crown. It was also called the Flower of Asia. And when the city chose a motto to be imprinted on their coinage, they uh, chose the phrase, first in Asia, 
in size and beauty. Now, several characteristics made the city special in its day. First, the city was famous for the production of myrrh. And and this substance came from a a shrub-like tree that produced a bitter gum. And when the leaves of this tree were crushed, they uh, they gave off a very fragrant, uh, fragrant odor. See, myrrh was used as a fragrance by the living and an embalming agent for the dead. Now, myrrh was mentioned in association with the life and ministry of Jesus. And it was mentioned in the books of Matthew, Mark, and John. Now, by definition, the word myrrh means bitter. And it came to be associated with suffering and death. Now, among the other factors that made this city, um, or the city of Smyrna special, included the fact that it was a planned city. See, most, uh, most cities of that day, they just sprang up without design. But this was planned down to the last detail. And, and Smyrna and its streets were planned. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it was very religious. Uh, it, it, uh, they, they, they spared no expense. And it, it, these temples, they were uh, dedicated to a pantheon of gods and goddesses they worshipped. And there were temples dedicated to Zeus and Cybele and Asclepos and Apollo and Aphrodite, among others. In fact, in fact, there was a street that was paved with gold that ran from the temple of Zeus to the temple of Cybele. That's an awful lot of gold. Now, while the pagan religions dominated the life of Smyrna, there was also a thriving Jewish community there. See, Smyrna was a free city. They governed themselves. But these, uh, the, the citizens were intensely loyal to Rome. And on one occasion, the citizens of Smyrna stripped the very clothing off their backs and they sent it along with, the food, with all the food they could find to Roman soldiers who were cold and hungry and on the battlefield. In this beautiful, wealthy, pagan city, there also existed a struggling little Christian community. And the church in Smyrna was undergoing some intense and withering persecution. And the Lord Jesus here comes to them with a word of comfort for their dark days. And he tells them that even though they appear to be so weak and they appear to be so poor, they are in fact rich beyond imagination. Prophetically, this church pictures the terrible persecution inflicted upon believers by the Roman emperors between the years 100 A.D. and 312 A.D. Practically and personally, there's a word here for everyone. In fact, everyone who has ever or will ever suffer for uh, Jesus' sake. So let's look at our Lord's words to this struggling little congregation to find the encouragement we need to be able to, uh, to stand when everyone else is against us. I want to take uh, just these few verses and I want to preach on the thought, faith under pressure. Now what I want you to see first is that Jesus, he intimately knows the church. Look at uh, uh, verses 8 and 9. It says, Under the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And look at verse 9. He says, I know. 
Jesus says, first off, that he is the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. You know, and, and, and that's a huge claim to make. The title, first and last, actually differs just a bit from the title Alpha and Omega, which was used earlier in chapter 1. The Alpha and Omega simply means first and last. But first in this is the word protos. And it means foremost in time, place, order, and importance. Last in this, in this verse is the word eschatos. And it means farthest, final, and uttermost. So right from the very beginning, Jesus is saying just in the first two chapters of this book, not only is he the beginning and the end, but he is the, the foremost and the uttermost. See, Jesus here begins to echo the words of God as recorded by the prophet Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 41.4. It says, Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. Isaiah 43.10 says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Isaiah 44.6 Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Isaiah 48, 12. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called, I am, uh, I am he, I am the first, I also am the last. In saying that he is the first and the last, Jesus is telling the disciples in Smyrna and you and me that our lives are bracketed, are boundaried, not by the decisions and actions of Caesar, not by the rise and fall of Rome, not by the decision of Joe Biden and his minions, nor by the rise and, uh, and or fall of the United States. Our lives are absolutely boundaried by him, first and last, and whatever happens in our history, and whatever happens in my history, Jesus is there as the first word, and Jesus will be there as the last word. And Jesus is here in the middle with the word that gives us life. But still, i got to ask, as I'm reading this passage, why present himself in this particular way to the disciples uh, at Smyrna? He, he says, the first of the last, which was dead and is alive. See, it's because those words immediately signal that Jesus knows what life in Smyrna is all about. See, Smyrna rivaled Ephesus as the first city of Asia. And on their coins were stamped first city of Asia in size and beauty. See, this city that Jesus is writing to, it, 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 they loved the word first. And Smyrna had gone through a number of once dead but come back to life experiences. 
As I said earlier, it had been destroyed in 580 B.C., but it was rebuilt in 290 B.C., and the city of Smyrna was proud of its resurrection. Notice how this letter starts. It says, the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. This letter was dictated to John from Jesus. He has risen. He is alive and well. And he says to that uh, little town, he goes, I know. Jesus goes on to list what he knows about the church. It it says it's work, it's tribulation, it's poverty. And we're going to look at, uh, at all of those points not necessarily today, but we're going to look at all those points. But I want to pause here just a second. See, because so many times as we read the Bible, we read through these letters and, and, and we miss the point that Jesus is intimately connected to his church. He says, I know. But how? I mean, outside of the obvious, I mean, he is God. How does he know? Is there something we may have missed? Look over at Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. It says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardi and unto Philadelphia and, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned... I saw seven golden candlesticks. Hold that place, that's important. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paths with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand Seven stars. Another placeholder. It's important. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Write these things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now, you got your two placeholders. I want you to look at this verse. Verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now, some of you may be looking at me going, Brother Ray, what in the world are you talking about? I'm glad you asked. See, John was worshiping on the Lord's day. And he heard this voice behind him. 
And he turned to see who was speaking to him. And he sees no other than the risen Lord. Can you imagine? His heart must have just leaped from its chest right before he fell over uh, uh, at Jesus' feet like a dead man. Here's my point, though. We learn from the text that Jesus was in the midst or in the center or in the middle of the seven golden candlesticks, which we later learn are the seven churches that John is going to write to. We also learn that Jesus has seven stars in his right hand, which we later learn are the angels or the messengers or the pastors of the seven churches and every other church because the Lord Jesus is in the middle of them. He is the head of them and he is intimately involved with them. I know. It is what he says to each of the seven churches. It is what he says to us in this city. It is what he says to the people of Colombia or Iraq or India or anywhere gathered in churches today. Now, isn't it a comfort to know that Jesus is right here with us in this church today and he's intimately involved in our lives? Now, let's get back to our text. See, Jesus knew that Smyrna was a crushed church. Look at verse 9 of our text. He says, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. See, it's easy just looking at this verse, if you didn't know the history and, 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 and go deeper, that this little church was going through some intense problems because of their testimony for the Lord Jesus. And they were letting their light shine in a dark world and they were being persecuted for it. Notice one of the ways they were persecuted. Jesus says, look, I know your tribulation. <coughs> other, vers uh, other versions of the Bible, it, it, render, it, goes, it says, I know your afflictions. The Greek word used here is thlipsis. It's spelled T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S, thlipsis. And it's a strong word. And its essential meaning is pressure. And more exactly, crushing pressure. It would have, it would have in the, the people that it was written to, the, uh, in the church of Smyrna, um, it would uh, be a picture of a person that was tortured to death by being slowly crushed by a great boulder that had been laid upon him. And see, the disciples in Smyrna were living out their faith under thlipses, under crushing pressure from all sides, from outside, from inside, from their brothers and sisters. It was, it was, it was a, it was a really, really tough time. And, and imagine, just imagine how they felt when as they gathered to read the book of Revelation, they heard the first line of the message addressed to them saying, from the Lord saying, I know your pressure. See, Jesus knows what we're experiencing. He knew what they were experiencing. He knows what each one of us are experiencing, both corporately and individually. And Jesus knows it because he was personally under it 
to an even greater degree. Hebrews 4.15 tells us this. says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we, we are, yet without sin. The other reason he knows it is because he stands and he moves among his churches. He's there in the midst of the believers in Smyrna. They're with them under this crushing pressure. But what does, he know, what does he who knows the pressure say to the uh, people of Smyrna? Now, I know what I wish he had said to them. I wished he had said something like this. Guys, look, uh, I know your pressure, and I'm going to lift it now. My disciples shouldn't have to be subject to difficulty and danger. Be faithful to me, and you will be insulated against the pressure of a broken, rebellious, decaying world. I wish that's what he said. I wish that's what he says to us. That would be really like lollipops, unicorns, and roses. Like I say, that's what I wished he had said. But what instead, what does he say? Look at verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and, you may ha- uh, and ye shall have tribulation for ten days. Be thou faithful unto death and I'll give thee a crown of life. Jesus says, I know your pressure. So don't fear what you're about to suffer. Be faithful unto death. Jesus is telling them right here and now, he says, look, it's going to get worse before it gets uh, gets better. Don't be afraid as the pressure now begins to mount and some of you are imprisoned and some of you are killed. Hang on to me. Now, as I read this and I thought about this, why no promise to lift the pressure? Why no promise to insulate his church against more tribulations? See, because in the nature of things, it just isn't possible. Why? Let's ask another question here. What did the church of Smyrna do to bring on this crushing pressure? Had they displeased the Lord? Had they did something wrong? And the answer is no. And guys, that's that's precisely the point. See, I want you to notice that in this, the second of seven messages, there isn't any word from Jesus to this church. There isn't a word of criticism. There isn't a word of correction. In other words, or in other messages, we hear Jesus saying, I have this against you. But not in this letter to Smyrna and not in the letter to Philadelphia. See, there's also no call to repentance. There's also uh, no call to take corrective action. Why? Because the disciples of Smyrna were getting it right. They They were doing it. Unlike the disciples in Ephesus... They hadn't left their first love. Unlike the Laodiceans, they weren't lukewarm. Unlike the believers in Pergamum and Thyatira, they weren't indifferent to or compromising with falsehood and immorality around them. This little church was passionately faithful to Jesus Christ, and they were sold out to the kingdom of God. And as a result, they were coming under flipsies. They were coming under crushing pressure. You've got to look at it this way. 
See, when the light begins to shine in the darkness, darkness has two options. One is to acknowledge what the light reveals and make the necessary changes. The other is to simply extinguish the light. See, the lampstand of the church of Smyrna was shining brightly. And God's will for life was being made very clear. And the darkness of this city couldn't tolerate it. And the lampstand was feeling the pressure. See, sometimes we also are under pressure. And we're under this pressure because we're making careless or wrong or ungodly choices. But sometimes we're under pressure because we're making wise, right, and godly choices. See, Paul told uh, Timothy in, in first, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Well, that's not something you want to hear, is it? <laughs> but it's, it's right there. And the disciples in Smyrna were experiencing tribulation because they were living godly lives. You know, the, uh, the Bible in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, it says, to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all those things will be, uh, shall be added unto you. This church was seeking first the kingdom and righteousness of God. And you know what? The city just didn't like it at all. Now, Scottish theologian Thomas Torrance said, said, a church can't be a true church without causing trouble. Now, not that a church sets out to cause trouble. It's just that in seeking to be a true church, a church true to Jesus will make waves and will find itself in tribulation of one sort or another. Why? Because what we believe what we stand for or who uh, we trust in goes completely against the grain of society. For the most part, the world just winks and gives us a bless your heart moment when we share our faith. But when we really begin to live for Jesus, and just like the church of Smyrna, we take a no compromise position for ourselves, for our children, our community, and our country, we're going to find ourselves in the middle of tribulation. We're going to find ourselves in the middle of thlipsies. See, faith under pressure. As I said earlier, the word Jesus uses is the word thlipsies. And it's a technical word in the, in the New Testament. It is never used of the normal frustrations of life, of the normal trouble we all experience in a broken world. It's always used in connection with the coming of the kingdom of God. And I think, it's, I think it is or will be an appropriate word for our time. See, Philipses is the pressure experienced as the kingdom of God comes up against the kingdom of human beings in rebellion against God. Philipses is the pressure experienced along the line where kingdoms clash along the line where the kingdom of light clashes with the kingdom of darkness, along the line where the reign of justice clashes with the reign of injustice, along the line where the rule of life clashes with the rule of death.
Thalipses is the pressure experienced where idols are being unmasked. Thalipses is the pressure experienced where human pride is confronted with the call to repentance. This is why having said, I know your Thalipses, Jesus didn't go on to say, and it's wrong, so I'm here to lift it. To follow him into the world is to inevitably experience Thalipses. Notice how the, uh, the Apostle John begins Revelation. Revelation 1.9, he says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, companion in Thalipses, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. See, John links three words here. Tribulation, kingdom, and patience or perseverance. To be in Jesus means to partake of the kingdom of God, which means partaking of the tribulation, which the inbreaking of the kingdom naturally causes, and partaking of the perseverance that being in the kingdom produces. We have to be about the Father's business. Don't get me wrong. To be in Jesus, partaking of the kingdom, also means partaking of joy and grace and power and fullness and celebration. It's all those things. But as long as there is any resistance, and there will always be until till we go home and even after, as long as there's any resistance to the kingdom, to be in Jesus and partaking of the kingdom means to be in flipsies or under pressure. Look at Revelation 2.9. Jesus says, I know thy works and, and tribulation. And then he says, fear not or fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. See, the disciples in Smyrna were under pressure and being warned that it was about to increase. We who seek to be faithful disciples in our cities, we're also under pressure. And it it seems to me that it's going to increase on, on many, many fronts here soon. I mean, look at the news. Look at the world around us. Can you feel the pressure mounting? Can you see the lines becoming clearer and clearer, the lines between the revealed will of God and the will of human beings in rebellion against God? Can you see the world around us sliding into deeper and deeper immorality and paganism and people becoming more and more intolerant of and hostile toward those who hold to ethical, moral, and spiritual values? Philipses is the pressure felt at the clashing of uh, values. Teenagers in North America who are seeking to be faithful to Jesus certainly know what Christians in Smyrna were experiencing, the pressure to compromise. And so too the college and university students who acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. Parents who seek to fulfill your God-given responsibilities to raise your children to follow Jesus certainly feel what the Christians in Smyrna were feeling. And so too you, uh, professionals, who seek to work from kingdom uh, principles. See, the the truth is, the more faithful we are to Jesus Christ, the greater the pressure we're going to feel. And that is why I say in the nature of things, when I ask the question, why didn't God lift this Thalipses from Smyrna? In the nature of the things, uh, God doesn't lift it. As I said earlier, 
Smyrna is now called Izmir. And Izmir is a vibrant city or vibrant center of Eastern Orthodox worship and education. But the funny thing about it is seldom during the last 19 centuries has the pressure lifted for the disciples there. And seldom has the church at Smyrna's vitality waned. Well, the church, and I ask myself as I look around and I look at our nation, will the churches of our time stand when the pressures increase? Will you, will I, stand as the tests get tougher? And and the only clue we have is how we're doing in the lesser tasks that come our way now. I know your pressure, says the Lord. And it, it, it seems only fair this morning to conclude by telling you that there is a way out of this pressure. Just don't get serious about loving Jesus. Just go with the flow of culture. Just settle for a comfortable, quiet, run-of-the-mill, watered-down kind of discipleship. We all know it. It's it's Christianity light. Just settle for a status quo, blessing kind of uh, discipleship. And you know what? There's not going to be a bit of pressure. Life is going to be skittles and unicorns. But you know what? There's not going to be any passion either. I know you're thlipsy, says the one who loves us. In the nature of things, he cannot or he will not lift it. He'll sustain us in it. He'll use it for his glory, but lift it, he's not going to do it. For his presence is the reason that the pressure comes. And you know, when I remember that, I can keep going. And I can do so even with a strange sort of joy. Pastor. There's never going to be a time when what we stand for here at Lighthouse is going to be okay with everybody out there. There's never going to be a time that the pressure is going to be taken off. The the angel of the church in Smyrna, pastor, you know where he was? He was right there in Jesus' hand. That's an awesome place to be. But it's also a place of pressure. I've been there for a long time. And I know what the pressure feels like. Sometimes the Lord squeezes There's one thing that happens in church. 
Sometimes people, and it's happened several times here over the last 20-something years, sometimes people get the idea, well, I don't think the pastor's preaching quite what he ought to be preaching. I don't think he's leading us quite where he ought to be leading us. Let me remind you of something. I'm in his hand. And he is absolutely capable of handling me. He is. He can take pressure off or he can put the pressure on. Lord knows how to handle his ministers. He doesn't need your help. I don't I don't know. I don't think anybody's doing that right now. I could be. I don't Satan's always got somebody stirring up something. Satan never takes a day off. He he doesn't. He he is twenty four seven after you. And the best way he can damage you is to come after me. If he could get me to if he could get me to preach that all the things that you know that you ought not to be doing are really okay. We we could get rid of some of that pressure. That's what he said. All we have to do to get rid of the pressure is just conform to the everybody out there. Just you know, homosexuality is no sin anymore. You can do whatever you feel like, and it's God's will. Let's don't talk about let's don't talk about sin. Let's don't talk about faithfulness. If I'm going to preach the Bible, you're going to hear about sin. And I'm going to preach the Bible. And something else that I don't know if you realize it or not, but I do not get to choose what I preach. Brother Ray has been under my teaching and leadership for well, how many years? 15? About 15, 16 years, something like that. Justin's been under my tutorage for, is that a word, tutorage? I don't know if that's a real word or not. But I've been telling him what to do for a long time. <laughs> not really. But, th- but there's a process. There's a process before we come to that pulpit. And the first thing we do in that process is not study. It's not the first thing. The first thing we do in that process is get on our face before God and ask the Lord, what do you want them to hear this week? What is your message to your church this week? And in full confidence that the Lord is going to do what he promised to do, we then open the book that we begin to search And we begin to write, and it takes shape. And our job, our job is to deliver to you on Sunday morning what Jesus has delivered to us for you 
during the previous week. That's our job. I don't, I do not choose what to preach. Ray doesn't get to choose what to preach. He says, he says this is the first of several messages he thinks. Well, the Lord, if, in case you're wondering, is famous for hearing our plans and then directing our steps where he wants them to go, regardless of what our plans were. We make our plans, and then the Lord directs our steps. He's warning us isn't, that something's coming, pressure. We're, we've, been, we've been pretty, we've been having it pretty good for a while. Now, we've been under times of great pressure. Satan's tried to destroy this church time and time and time again. Most of you have no idea what he's actually done and what we've had to go through under certain circumstances over the past 20 years. But he's not, he's not quit. He's been trying to destroy this church. Where's the church in Smyrna today? As far as we know, it's not there. There may be a church there. It may be a real one. I don't know. I'd have to go visit, find out. That'd be cool. Where's Lighthouse going to be in another 20 years? Is Satan going to win? Will it be up to the pastor? Partially, somewhat, yeah. It's up to all of us. I don't, you know, it's after lunchtime. Let's stand together. This morning in Bible class, this morning in Bible class, I taught from John chapter 2, where Jesus had performed the turning of water into wine in Cana. They went down to Capernaum for a few days, not many days it says, and then they went up to Jerusalem because it was time for the Passover. When Jesus got to Jerusalem, first place he went was God's house. He went in and he saw the money changers. They'd made a business, a big business out of the temple. And they were using it for money. And the Lord Jesus made a scourge of cords, made a whip very effective tool and he took that tool and he drove them out it says he drove them out he drove out the oxen and he drove out the sheep and he said do not make my father's house a house of merchandise and he ran them off and then and then he said the zeal of my house of thy house talking to the father hath eaten me up it hath consumed me the zeal for the house of God hath consumed me and all morning long I've been thinking about that statement 
What is my zeal for the house of God like? Lighthouse, this is my church. This is where I belong. This is where I am part of the body. I belong here. I am a part of this church. A living, breathing, working, serving part of Lighthouse Baptist Church. And I'm not the... I'm not the, the big kid on the block. I'm just a member like you if you're a member of this church. And I have a zeal for this church. And what Jesus said about his father's house in Jerusalem there, he said, my zeal for this house has consumed me. I, 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 don't, I don't ever have enough to say about this church and what it means to be a part of this church and what the value is being a part of this church and the price that I'm willing to pay to get to be a part of this church. How's, how's your zeal for this church? This is my father's house. This is your father's house if you're a Christian. What kind of zeal do you have? What, what is that word anyway? It's enthusiasm. How glad are you to be here? What's the price? What's it worth to you to get to be a part of something like this? You look around and you see a lot of empty seats and you think, well, we're not so special. Let me tell you something. This church is special. Jesus died for this church and he was buried and he rose again and it's special. And some of you came to know Jesus through this church and more of you are getting ready to come to know Jesus through this church. And I don't care, I don't care if every seat in here ever gets full or not. What I care about is that the people in these seats know Jesus. And it's real. And whatever number the Lord gives us of his people that are like that, that's the one I'm satisfied with. I love this church. Would I die for this church? I don't know that yet. I haven't been put in that position yet. But I know one thing. If I wouldn't live for this church, I sure never die for this church. Right now, my job is the same as yours, and that is to live for this church. You say you're going to live for the church? What about Jesus? This church is the body of Christ. It's the same thing what it means what's your zeal for your house your house of God your church what's it like today I'm done let's sing